Praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, as I'm recording this podcast, it is the 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. That's Sunday, September 4th, for those of you keeping track. And it is a hot afternoon here in Menlo Park. It's in the 90s, sunny, and uh, yeah, we're getting the, um, the late season summer heat. Although the mornings have been getting a little bit cooler day by day, so we're beginning to shade ever so gently into fall. Personally, I'm ready for it. Ready for the leaves to fall, ready for the, the cooler days, even for the fog to start rolling in again. I saw a post online the other day which said, uh, every fall is like a second spring, and the changing of the leaves is like the budding of new flowers. Uh, Something true in that, certainly. A season of transition has its own, its own unique beauty. For my part, as I'm looking forward to fall, I just enjoyed a pumpkin spice latte <laughs> provided by a seminarian brother here whose room uh, we jokingly call the St. Benedict Cafe because he makes himself available to us to prepare delicious, delicious coffee drinks <laughs> at all hours of the day. <laughs> I have uh, just returned, well, a couple hours ago now, but just returned from my, my weekend parish assignment. I am serving this year at Mater Dolorosa Catholic Church, which means uh, the Sorrowful Mother, Mater Dolorosa, in South San Francisco. Lovely parish. Um, I just got my assignment this past week. And so I'm, I'm currently working with the pastor to kind of nail down what exactly I will be doing. We had a meeting uh, during the week. And uh, so, so far I don't have any particular assignments from him in terms of like which masses I'll be doing. Now, the interesting thing about this parish is that uh, it's served by a small religious community called the Contemplatives of St. Joseph. They are what's called a community of diocesan rite. That means they are, they only exist here in the Archdiocese of San Francisco. So they're not like the Dominicans or Jesuits or Franciscans or something who are international. Those, those are religious orders of what's called pontifical rite, which means they're under the Pope. Whereas the Contemplatives of St. Joseph are under the Archbishop of San Francisco, because they only exist here. So that's a little canon law lesson for you today. Uh, so they're a purely local order. Very interesting. They're a part of their charism. Um, of course, they live a contemplative life, as you can tell from the name. Uh, so they are monks, but they also have an apostolate in the archdiocese. And they, uh, as you can tell also by the fact that they now run a parish. This is their first year taking on a, a whole parish. Um, their life is very liturgical, and a part of their charism is to, as Pope St. John Paul II put it, to breathe with both lungs of the church. That is to say, the Western and the Eastern. You know, here in the, in the West, um, certainly in the United States, M many of us sometimes can very easily even forget that there is such a thing as the Eastern Catholic Churches. But there are. You know, we belong to the Roman Catholic Church, and it's by far the biggest. 
but there are actually 23 Catholic churches, which all, you know, they are united. They, we, we all belong to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and we're all under the headship of Pope Francis, um, who is called the ecumenical pontiff, the Pope of Rome. But uh, within this one holy Catholic and apostolic church, there are a number of different jurisdictions and they belong to different liturgical families. So it's, it, the Catholic Church is bigger than just the Latin Rite and the Roman Catholic Church. Um, there are the Byzantine Catholic Churches who celebrate the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Then there are you know, the Coptic Catholic Churches. There are the uh, Chaldean Catholic Churches. In India, you have the Syro-Malabar and the Syro-Malankara. So there are a number of different liturgical traditions. Um, I, ha I have not named all of them, there are many more. So the contemplatives of St. Joseph here in San Francisco, part of their charism is, yeah, they, they, they are um, monks and priests of the Western Catholic Church, of the Roman Catholic Church, and they celebrate the Roman Rite, both the Novus Ordo, the, the new uh, forms of the liturgy, since 1970, as well as the traditional Latin Mass. But then, in addition to that, they also celebrate the Byzantine Divine Liturgy of the Eastern Catholic Churches. And so, their, their life, I'm sure, is very confusing in some ways, because they have to follow three different calendars, and they're constantly juggling these different liturgies. But there's a real beauty to holding these things together and um, celebrating these, these very rich and complementary liturgical rites within you know, one community. Anyway, all that to say, um, I've been going there for the last couple of weeks, even though I only just got the assignment. Uh, I was already going there, and I've been serving as a deacon in the Byzantine Divine Liturgy. So this weekend and last weekend and the weekend before, I've gone to Divine Liturgy, Eastern Catholic uh, Mass, <laughs> for, quote unquote, for my Sunday liturgy. So I'm learning. I'm learning the deacon part. Uh, and since I've, I've exclusively done that the last three weekends in a row, I am beginning to get more familiar and comfortable with the deacon parts of the Byzantine Divine Liturgy. You know, it's a very beautiful liturgy. I was talking with a friend just earlier today, just about the difference between like the Roman mindset, the Roman style versus the Byzantine style. And they are very different. <laughs> the Roman style, the Roman genius, if you want to put it that way, is very much about, um, there's a kind of a modesty to it. There's a kind of a simplicity, a conciseness. Um, a certain Roman virtue, I think, which our liturgy evinces and, and, and possesses to a high degree, is um, decorum and, um, how shall I say, a, a kind of a, hmm, a noble simplicity. That's the way that the Second Vatican Council characterized it, a noble simplicity. So there's a nobility, but we don't do things to excess. <laughs> we do something once. Or, or maybe three times, like the Kyrie. Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. That's Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And we're done. We've said it three times. 
there's a certain perfection of three, and then we're done. The Byzantine genius is very different. If you've ever been to a Byzantine divine liturgy, you know, it's like we can never say, Lord, have mercy enough. And uh, as the deacon, I am constantly leading all these litanies. So there's kind of a call and response sort of a structure where the deacon says a, a prayer intention and then the choir responds, Lord, have mercy. And there's a, a number of different tones that they sing that in. And so there's this nice back and forth. It's kind of like the waves of the ocean where the deacon is singing some prayer intention and, the, and it comes to a crescendo and the wave crests. And then the scola jumps right in and responds, Lord, have mercy. And then back to the deacon and the scola back and forth, back and forth. So I'm constantly, <laughs> I'm, I'm in the holy place at the altar, and then have, I receive the priest's blessing, and then I go around out through the, the doors and in front of the icon of Christ, and I'm singing all these petitions. It happens probably five or six times during the liturgy that I go out to lead these different litanies. And Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. We probably pray Lord have mercy hundreds of times within a single divine liturgy. So there's a genius to that as well. I, I think maybe I've talked about this in the podcast before. You know, uh, part of the Byzantine genius is, yeah, and this is true, we can never say, Lord have mercy enough. <laughs> we could say it a thousand times. We could say it a million times. And we would still be in need of the Lord's mercy. And we still would never merit it on our own. And so it's just this kind of spirituality of marveling and wondering at the sheer gratuity of God's mercy, which comes to us not by our own merits, but by his sheer goodness. And so we pray, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Everything in the Byzantine Rite is done um, in a kind of glorious excess. It reminds me of Baroque art, you know, or like a great Baroque cathedral in Rome. Um, you look around and you see, I mean, everything is just decorated, there's decorations on the decorations, you know. And it's not just for decoration's sake. It's because it's kind of an image of like the glory of, of, of heaven, the glory of God, which like the sheer givenness of God's glory, which is inexhaustible and overwhelming. One professor described Baroque art to us in an art history class as like an alleluia, which never ends. <laughs> it's alleluia all over the place. The Byzantine Divine Liturgy is like that. It's just overwhelming. And you just enter into it and you get swept up in it. So I'm really enjoying this kind of immersion experience into the Eastern Catholic liturgies. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you will know that I've been going semi-regularly to Byzantine Divine Liturgies over the last couple of years. You know, my spiritual director is a biritual priest, Roman Catholic and Russian Catholic. He celebrates the Byzantine Liturgy in San Francisco. So I've, with him, experienced a lot gotten to go to it over the last two years. Also one year during Lent here, I was asked by a local Byzantine priest to sing for his uh, evening liturgies. So I got to learn a lot of the Byzantine tones there. And now this year at Mater Dolorosa, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really getting a lot of firsthand practical experience of serving in this liturgy in a new way now as a deacon. Um, leading certain prayers, the deacon gets to do a lot in the Byzantine Divine Liturgy. There's a, a very beautiful moment. It's just before the consecration of the bread and the wine, 
we know in the Roman rite that, that, that occurs, the transubstantiation occurs. The bread becomes the body of Jesus and the wine becomes his blood. As the priest, bending low over the gifts, speaks the very words of Christ. This is my body. This is my blood. And in the Roman rite, that happens after the epiclesis, which is the moment that the priest lowers his hands over the gifts and calls down the Holy Spirit. So first he calls down the Holy Spirit, then he speaks the words of Christ, and as he speaks the words of Christ, the mystery is accomplished. The transubstantiation occurs, the miracle takes place, Christ is now present. In the Eastern rites, it's actually flipped, which is interesting. So as the deacon, I'm standing there at the altar, and... uh, holding the orarion, which is like the, the deacon's stole. I, I hold it up and I'm pointing at the gifts. First I point at the bread and I say, bless master, the holy bread. And uh, the priest says, he calls down the Holy Spirit and says, make this bread the precious body of your son. And then again, bless master, the holy cup, and make this wine the, the precious blood of thy son. Bless both master making the change through your Holy Spirit. Amen, amen, amen. It's this glorious moment that everyone falls prostrate with their faces to the ground before this glorious mystery. It's truly a beautiful rite. Anyway, that's something that I'm uh, rejoicing in this year and looking forward to experiencing more of. Um, Of course, that's not the only thing I'll be doing at the parish. So currently the uh, tentative plan is that every weekend I will serve at three liturgies, whether that may be the, you know, the Roman Rite, the traditional Latin Mass, the Novus Ordo, or the Byzantine Divine Liturgy, three out of their whole schedule. And I will just uh, rotate through all the Masses over the, the weeks that I'm there. Then out of the three Masses I serve on a given weekend, I will be preaching at one every weekend. So uh, basically I'll be preparing a homily every week and preaching at one Mass every week. And that's, that's kind of nice. I think it'll be good practice for me as I'm preparing to go into a parish you know, full-time next year to already start forming the habit of every week preparing a homily, even though I'm only going to be preaching it once per weekend. So it's, it's kind of a nice on-ramp. And then the pastor has some other ideas as well. There's a, a parish Knights of Columbus council that I might, uh, sounds like, be helping out with. They want to, they're kind of just getting off the ground. They want to start a pro-life ministry so I can kind of help them, you know, organize. I can help out with the confirmation classes on Sundays. Um, and then hopefully as the year starts getting underway, there will be opportunities to help with baptisms, marriages, um, visits to the homebound and the sick. So all those wonderful things that a deacon can do, uh, pr- provided the opportunities arise, the pastor is eager and I am eager to uh, get involved with those. I'm also looking forward in a few weeks to flying back to Oregon for one day only. I was invited this summer to uh, be deacon for a wedding mass in the traditional Latin uh, form. So it's a traditional Latin nuptial mass. It's on October 1st, the Feast of St. Therese. And so on Friday, September 30th, I'll be flying back to Medford in order to serve as deacon at that mass on Saturday. And I fly right back here Saturday night. 
It'll be a real quick trip. I'm excited about it. I'm very excited. And I'm, as the, the date begins to draw nearer now, I'm uh, starting to practice, you know, looking over the rubrics of that mass and starting to um, try to visualize my role in it. It'll be my first time serving as deacon in the traditional Latin mass. Um, so I'm yeah, beginning to prepare for that with great anticipation and joy. This is, uh, I know the, the groom and the family of the groom. I have not yet met the bride, but I'm confident she's a very fine young lady. And I'm excited to celebrate with both of their families and just very grateful for the opportunity to come and join them for this celebration. And it sounds like uh, I might be bringing another seminarian with me as well because uh, just as of today, the family is asking me if I can also provide an MC <laughs> for the Mass, someone who knows the ceremonies. So I think I can do that. There's a couple seminarians here who are well-versed in the traditional Latin Mass. So I can find somebody who's willing to do it, um, then I can travel up with him as well. So it should be a, a great weekend filled with much joy. Please keep them in your prayers uh, as their big day draws ever nearer. Speaking of big days, uh, this, is, this is certainly a couple steps down from a wedding, but there was a big day this week for all of us J.R.R. Tolkien fans. The long-anticipated uh, Amazon series, The Rings of Power, its first two episodes premiered on Thursday night. And so let's talk about it. I stayed up way too late watching those two episodes the night that they came out, the night of the premiere. And yeah, I have some thoughts. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. All right, so needless to say, in this segment, spoilers follow for the first two episodes of The Rings of Power. If you've not yet watched them, they are released, they are available on Amazon Prime, and I highly recommend that you go and watch them before you listen to this segment, because I'm going to spoil everything, <laughs> at least as much as we know so far. Now, there's not a lot of secrets that have been unveiled yet. These first two episodes are really setting the stage for what is yet to come later in this season. So I'll just say, first of all, by way of preface, I was very pleasantly surprised by these first two episodes. Like many of you, my expectations were fairly low. I didn't necessarily expect the worst from Amazon, and I know some Tolkien fans really did. <laughs> there were some who were convinced that this series will be like the end of Tolkien, that Amazon is just gonna trample on everything we love. And uh, they have a totally antithetical spirit to Tolkien's own spirit, that they're just in it to make money. And that basically they're gonna have no respect for the lore and they're just gonna make a series that has really nothing to do with Tolkien, just using his names and places and characters to tell a generic fantasy story and make as much money as they can. Now, I understand those fears, but I think I had a more hopeful view than certainly some people in the Tolkien community. And yeah, I think 
from what I saw prior to these first episodes being released, I mean, interviews and promotional material and things like that, I didn't see a lot of cause for concern. Other people did. Some people were very upset about this change or that change. You know, it's like, oh, the, the elves have short hair and the dwarven women don't have beards. Things like that, which frankly, I think are you may disagree with me. I think that's a little bit nitpicky. I'm not so concerned with those like very minor details of the lore. Because here's the thing. This is my argument. If you pay attention to like the process of development from the early stages of the Middle-earth legendarium to later, many, many, many aspects, significant aspects of the lore underwent quite substantial changes. There was a process of development. And after all, I mean, this is his life's work, really. Um, the Silmarillion through the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, of course, and the unfinished tales and the many more like scraps and things that have probably not even yet been released. Throughout all of this writing, Tolkien was constantly refining, updating, changing, adjusting the, the history and all the aspects of this secondary world that he had created. Also, a central part of the conceit of Middle-earth is this. Tolkien presents himself as a translator and a compiler. This is his kind of meta-narrative, that he has discovered these legends of Middle-earth and that he has translated them into English and that he is retelling the stories which have been passed down to us from some distant time lost to history. And so that goes a long way towards explaining, even in the written works of Tolkien himself, why there are inconsistencies and why there are sometimes different versions of this story or that one, where the details may differ. We have plenty of examples of that in real literature that has been handed down from ancient times and repeatedly translated. Tolkien would have been very familiar with this phenomenon. Textual transmission tends to generate mutations, different versions of legendary tales. Think of the myths of King Arthur and the Round Table. Think of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Think of uh, even Beowulf. There are different, I believe, there are different versions of the Beowulf text. And so, with the Silmarillion, although they are all written by Tolkien himself, throughout his life he made changes to these stories and we can kind of hold those different versions in a, a tense togetherness, <laughs> to use a phrase by the philosopher William Desmond. We can kind of hold them together, not subsuming one to the other, simply acknowledging that there exist different variants of this story, and maybe we prefer one to another. It's also the case as regards the stories of Galadriel and Celeborn. Galadriel, it seems like the rings of power are setting her up as kind of the main character of this new series. To which I say, bravo, she is excellent. I think she's really gonna carry this series. Although, I was talking with a friend earlier today and he has some very strong reservations about some character choices that they have made regarding her. I can see his point of view. Yes, the way that the Rings of Power is interpreting Galadriel's character is different from anything we've seen so far in Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion. Now, it's different. I don't say it's contrary. 
they are giving us a different angle on Galadriel, but it's substantially, I would argue, substantially in continuity with what Tolkien has already provided. In at least two different versions of Galadriel's character that he himself wrote. Okay, so that's kind of my point. The Rings of Power is not going to always be in agreement with the established lore in every detail, but I think that's okay because even the lore itself is not always in continuity with itself <laughs> in every detail. Now, what are the two traditions about Gladriel that are within Tolkien's own written tradition? I talked about this previously in episode 79, The Bitter Sea. First, Tolkien wrote her as one of the, the Noldor who was born in Valinor. So she was born and grew up in Valinor. She lived in that early blissful age in the light of the two trees. She saw the day of the great darkening when Morgoth and Shelob arrived and attacked the two trees, Laurelin and Telperion, and plunged the world into darkness. She was there during the rebellion of Feanor and uh, the other Noldor who rose up against the Valar in protest, basically, and who went to Alqualande and, you know, stole the ships of the Teleri and brother slayed brother there on the coasts of Valinor. And the Noldor, led by Feanor, sailed off in the stolen ships and went to Middle-earth to wage war on Sauron. In the first version of Galadriel's tradition, she participated in that rebellion. So she was, well, not exactly a follower of Feanor. She always, actually, she always hated Feanor. Tolkien has a lovely phrase, says they were unfriends, always. <laughs> they were unfriends. He was kind of like courting her and she just couldn't stand him. She saw something dark in him that uh, just made him repugnant to her. Nonetheless, though, it seems she agreed with his basic motivation, which was to go seek vengeance on Sauron, to go like hunt him down and uh, to see justice accomplished on Sauron for what he did to Valinor. So Galadriel came under the fate of Mandos, the doom of Mandos, which if you will recall, when all these elves set sail on their stolen ships, Mandos, one of the Valar, decreed that none of them should ever set foot again on Valinor. They were permanently banned, banished from the Blessed Realm. Then, later on, after the War of Wrath, which ended the First Age, when, Saur when uh, Morgoth was defeated by the Valar, and it seems that peace was restored, the doom of Mandos was lifted, and the Noldor, who had been exiled, were allowed to return home. By that time, Feanor and the other kind of leaders of the initial rebellion had all died. So the doom is lifted, the Noldor are allowed to return. Some do, many don't, but gradually over the thousands of years that follow, there is this very slow return of all the elves, little by little, making their way back to Valinor, sailing west. And we see that in the Rings of Power, about which more in just a minute. So that's the, kind of the first tradition about Galadriel. The second one Tolkien wrote later on, he revised her backstory a little bit, and he said instead of participating in the rebellion, Galadriel, she just kind of, she had her own plans, you know, <laughs> she and her fiancé, Celeborn, they had these grand ideas of going to Middle-earth and kind of founding their own kingdom and mm, making their mark on the world. And so they were planning, they actually had built their own ship, and they were planning to go, 
and they were going to ask permission from the Valar when all hell broke loose with Morgoth and Shelob and then Feanor's rebellion. And in the midst of all the chaos, they ended up just setting sail. They were kind of just like fleeing away from, you know, the war at Alqualande and the, you know, brother fighting against brother. They just set sail. And so they didn't really intend to rebel, but they fell under the doom of Mandos anyway because they set sail away from Valinor. They kind of just like got lumped in with all the rest of the rebels. Then in Tolkien's backstory for Galadriel, at the end of the First Age, when the Valar are, uh, permit the Noldor, the elves, to return home to Valinor, Galadriel refuses. And so, depending on which strand of the textual tradition you follow, it's either because she's too proud on the one hand. Well, really, it's either way, it's because of her pride, right? So, in the, according to the First Tradition, she's too proud to go back to Valinor where they had exiled her. And she has a restlessness about her. Tolkien writes in one place in the Unfinished Tales that she was never at peace. And so even after the War of Wrath, when Morgoth is defeated, Galadriel's still like not at peace. And she's not gonna go back to Valinor to dwell in the Blessed Realm because her heart is still restless and she's proud and she's stubborn and she needs to go through more um, maturation and development over thousands of years before she can hope to go back to the Blessed Realm, even though they've given her permission. The other tradition is, of course, where Galadriel was kind of wrongfully exiled. She doesn't want to go back and, and like accept the Valar's pardon because they won't admit that they made a mistake <laughs> in her respect. And so, you know, to go back like now that she's pardoned and allowed to return would be like to tacitly admit that they were right in exiling her in the first place. And she was innocent. And so she does not accept the terms of the pardon. But in either case, she remains in Middle-earth out of a kind of pride and stubbornness and, it seems to me, a sense that like she hasn't completed her work yet. Maybe that's a way to put it. Even though the Noldor are permitted to return back to Valinor now, Galadriel still is in the midst of this inner turmoil, even though now, now the War of Wrath is completed and the First Age has come to an end. Now, in the new Rings of Power, there's kind of a third interpretation of Galadriel's character. Galadriel now is given this new motivation, which is to carry on the work of her brother, Finrod, who had devoted himself to the overthrow of Sauron. And they are attempting to be in continuity with the Silmarillion without incorporating any of that material that's exclusively found in the Silmarillion because Amazon only has the rights to what's contained within the Lord of the Rings itself and its appendices. They don't have the rights to the Silmarillion proper. So they're having to kind of skirt around the edges of what Tolkien wrote in the Silmarillion without directly contradicting it, but without incorporating it either. It's a very delicate tightrope that they're walking there. So as I say, Galadriel is given this new motivation now in the Rings of Power. She's trying to carry on the work of Finrod, her brother. She's pursuing Sauron to the very ends of Middle-earth. Because while the rest of the elves have kind of settled into the comfortable belief that evil is defeated now with the end of the First Age. Morgoth is gone. He's been chained up by Mandos, never to return. Sauron has disappeared. Um, everything seems to be settled. 
but Galadriel doesn't believe it. She's still pursuing Sauron. Out of this kind of inner restlessness, motivated it seems by the desire to avenge her brother who was killed by Sauron and to carry on and, and complete his life's mission. In this, uh, these first two episodes, we see Galadriel is granted the opportunity to go back to Valinor. And it's very dramatically played out. Galadriel is, you know, she reluctantly accepts. She gets on the ship, they sail almost all the way there. You see the light of the Blessed Realm opening up before them. And at the last minute, she jumps overboard and she makes as if it seems to swim all the way back to Middle-earth. Yeah, it's a bit unlikely. I think, however, you could excuse it because television as a visual medium, it does kind of require you to show, not tell. So, whereas in the textual tradition, Tolkien can just have Galadriel refuse to go back to Valinor, well, that doesn't make very interesting viewing, to have her just standing on the shore and, and refuse to go. It's much more interesting visually to have her go on the ship and you can sort of get a glimpse of Valinor and then you get to see her make her final decision in the, you know, the tension of, uh, of her inner conflicted soul. Anyway, so Galadriel refuses to go back to Valinor. At the very last second, she turns around, she swims back to Middle-earth, and uh, we get the strong impression she's going to continue pursuing Sauron, even if she must now do it alone, without the support of Gilgalad, the High King of the Elves. And she's going to continue to try to, to accomplish this single-minded quest that she has that drives her onward. Gladriel is very well portrayed. I forget the name of the actress who's portraying her in this series, but she has this, this kind of smoldering, like, fire is inner fire you can sense in her. Um, you do get the sense that she's a soul that's never at peace. She's very restless, and she is, um, she's on a mission, and nothing's going to hold her back. And, you know, it makes sense. The Galadriel that we meet a uh, thousand years later in The Lord of the Rings has had a millennium in order to mature and to um, exercise these inner demons, which in this series, The Rings of Power, The Second Age, are very much still compelling and motivating her actions. All that to say, um, yeah, this is a, a different interpretation of Galadriel. It's like a warrior queen. Her anger comes out more than it does in, I think, Tolkien's writing. Her conflictedness is a little bit more on display. She seems a little bit less well-respected by the other elves. But as, as I say, I don't see anything in this interpretation so far that's actually contradictory to the lore. I, I, I see it as substantially in continuity and it's just a different angle on the character. Now, there's other storylines too, and we won't get into them all today. We've got six episodes left to go in this season. I may or may not be talking about it every single week, but uh, I will strive to keep you updated with my thoughts as the series goes on. Please let me know your own as well. All right, let us now jump over to our very first Carmelite conversation of this new season of the podcast, this new segment on Carmelite spirituality. Today, I am pleased to welcome the very first guest of In Your Embrace podcast, season six. So without further ado, let us go to meet him. 
Whoever is a little one, let him come to me. I have no need to climb to the height of the great saints, but I just have to be myself, a little child. In these words of scripture, I found at last my little way to become a saint. Friends, it is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Murphy to In Your Embrace podcast today. Daniel is a parishioner of Our Lady of the Mountain Parish in Ashland, Oregon, where I was able to spend my summer this year as a deacon. He lives there with his wife, Deborah, and he serves in the parish as spiritual advisor for the St. Vincent de Paul Society. He teaches in the RCIA program and facilitates parish-wide strategic forums, as well as helping with the young adult ministry. Daniel has a bachelor's degree in English and German literature and languages from the University of Illinois, a master's in family studies and early childhood development from Western Oregon University, and a second master's in administrative leadership and adult education from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Deborah and Daniel take delight in their six young adult children and in lavishing loving attention on their first grandchild, Eleanor Rose. For over 30 years, Daniel held positions in human services, ranging from direct service to executive leadership, serving the poor and the most vulnerable in society. And in Daniel's life, the spirituality of Carmel, the Carmelite doctors, has played a central role from the time of his adult reconversion to Christ up to the present day. As a protege of St. John Paul II, Daniel seeks to start afresh from Christ every day. And I believe, Daniel, you would say in addition to St. John Paul II, you would count yourself as a protege and disciple of our sister, St. Therese. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. That's great. Deacon Matthew, thank you for sharing that information about me. And it's, it's utterly true that I consider myself a little brother, a protege of St. <laughs> Therese of Lisieux. So it's great to have this conversation together because I think we're, we're in the same sibling group. Yes, agreed. Yeah, I think so as well. We're part of St. Therese's uh, family extended down through the generations. You know, um, for you listeners, before we started recording today, Daniel and I were just saying a prayer together for St. Therese intercession. And as, as we were praying, I was just struck by how this, this little saint who so attracted the heart of God has become really a mother of many souls. There's the image in my mind of like an army of little souls that God has raised up all around the world and down through the many years that have passed since her death just over a century ago. How many little souls who have been raised up and formed according to her teachings and her little way of following Christ? And we're so blessed to be among their number, huh? That's an awesome image. It's one that had not occurred to me, but the motherhood, if you will, the spiritual motherhood of Therese, that's uh, a beautiful image. And I would say I completely concur. I can't imagine that there are many saints who are more beloved in the Roman Catholic Christian tradition than Therese. I think her story of a soul 
for instance, at one point, I'm not sure how current this is, but at one point, the second largest best-selling work after the Bible itself. Hmm. So her doctrine has gone far and wide. Yes, absolutely. And from such an unlikely beginning, a little monastery in Lisieux, France, in which Therese was almost entirely unknown. I mean, there's the story of as she lay dying, her sisters outside her window were wondering, what could we possibly write in her obituary? Therese never did anything. <laughs> I think she overheard that conversation, right? And I believe she got a chuckle. Yeah. Yes, as she was lying there in bed. Yeah, exactly. She was delighted to hear this because she'd achieved her ambition to live a hidden life with God. Yes. So maybe this is a good place for us to start. We've talked about, just in our own conversations before hitting the record button today, we've talked a little bit about the structure of the life of St. Therese. So just who is this, this great saint, this little flower, as we call her and as... Uh, Jesus was delighted to call her. Who is this little flower from Lisieux? Well, she is a <laughs> remarkable little flower when you think about it and take the whole of her life into a glance, a mere 24 years that she lived on earth. She was born on January 2nd, 1873, and the Lord took her back home on September 30th, 1897. So again, she was 24 years of age at that point. Um, and we've looked at her life, by the way, Deacon, and just throw this out there is, this is a construct, so we're kind of putting this forth, that one could look at her life like the heroic journey that's sometimes described um, mm. is sort yes. of a monomyth, a way to look at many different great human lives. And so it's sort of a three-act structure. The first part of her life is pretty much birth. One way to look at it is birth until she entered Carmel at the ripe age of 15 after <laughs> pummeling on the gates of heaven to get in and even asking the Pope to let her in during a visit in, in an audience in Rome with the Pope. Uh, her second act could be considered from that entry into Carmel, which was 1888, to a very important mark in her journey, which was making an oblation, creating before God her offer to be a victim soul of divine love and mercy. And that mm, was yes. in 1895. So that was about a seven-year period, and that included her discovery, if you will, of the little way, which we'll talk more about, and teaching it to the novices. And then the final act could be identified as from that oblation in 1895 to her actual death, physical death on September 30th, 1897. So that's just mm -hmm. kind of a very broad portrait of the trajectory of her life. As we were discussing before the podcast and, and preparing for this, Daniel, I just love the idea of looking at the life of Therese through the three-act structure of a heroic journey. Because again, how unlikely that the life of this young woman who died in obscurity could be considered the life of a great hero. And yet that's exactly what it is. You know, when I first read the story of a soul, which is her great autobiography, 
written towards the end of her life as she was already a Carmelite and as she was becoming more and more sick. At the request of her sister, Pauline, who was the mother superior of, of the Carmel. Um, anyway, when I first read this autobiography, I had the experience that Therese was uh, not quite to my taste. And um, especially these early chapters of her life. I recently reread them on a retreat and I was utterly charmed by her. Uh, quite a different reaction. I was charmed by her her candor, by her honesty, by her simplicity, by her innocence. Um, but the first time that I read it, my reaction to her was, this is a very strange saint. <laughs> very effeminate. Uh, very, seemed to me very childish. Um, and uh, very French, of course. So that's also very strange for <laughs> an American to read. <laughs> You know, I think my reaction to her is not uncommon. Um, those who read St. Therese today very often are, are a little bit put off by her. And yet, e even in her early years, in her first act, she, she gave evidence of some of the qualities of soul that would later make her, you know, a hero of grace, a great saint. One of them that I can think of uh, just from my recent rereading is when she was very young, you know, her mother, who is also now a canonized saint, uh, Zelie Martin would remark that that Therese, she you know she wasn't sweet tempered like her older sisters. She called her a little imp. <laughs> she always had to have her own way. She's very stubborn, but she showed this incredible quality of being great hearted. She had a great capacity for friendship, and she would just want to give and give and give to her sisters. You know, if, if anything good came her way, she would want to share it or give it away, especially to Celine the one who was closest to her in age. And if, if she got like a, a little rose from her mother or a little sprig of cherries and she couldn't share it with Celine, she would cry and cry because she wanted to have everything in common with her to share everything. Daniel, any thoughts from this early period of Therese's life? What strikes you about her first act? Well, you know, what struck me, Deacon, as you were speaking is, of course, her dear mother, whom you mentioned, uh, her mother and father are now canonized saints. Her mother died, I think, when she was four years old. And mm -hmm. with current vernacular, we would describe that as a, tra a childhood trauma. Absolutely. really marked her significantly, right? And I think another current epithet that could be used, perhaps without doing violence in any way, to Therese and her life journey is that she was highly emotionally sensitive. Yes. And that now is considered not, uh, it can be a trait that can be associated with some mental disorders like uh, acute anxiety, but it's really more of a personality trait. And I think her high degree of sensitivity, emotional sensitivity, and that connectivity that you described, her ability to relate to others and be generous toward yes. them is just a, a beautiful gift, which sometimes plagued her because it tilted a little bit too much toward a sort of ultra sensitivity. And I think it was her Christmas, so-called Christmas conversion. Mm. I think she was 13. Correct me if I'm got that wrong, Deacon. But I think she you're right. had this experience of basically being mildly chided by her father for wanting kind of the conventional Christmas experience and gifts and so forth. And she just, that woke her up. It's like somebody threw mm -hmm. cold water 
on her face, and she, in a sense, became an adult Christian. Yes. And I believe John Paul II described that in his apostolic letter, proclaiming her a doctor of the church, that that was the moment of her, quote, complete conversion. So I think that kind of shows a lot about this highly sensitive uh, young lady who could connect so powerfully, could also tilt into a sort of ultra sensitivity. And through this grace of the Christmas conversion, she became, in a certain way, had a developed an inner strength, almost a mm. steely quality. I remember in one of your podcasts during a, a novena to St. Therese, you described some of her last words were, I really will it. Yes. She just yes. developed like a will that was so strong and it's, it seems almost unshakable. But I remember in that moment, what she was responding to was the possibility that she would have to live on earth longer and continue to endure the terrible suffering of tuberculosis and the experience of suffocation. And rather than saying, oh, God, let me free of this, she says, after a pause and some kind of re recollection that we can only imagine, she says, I really will this. And I see that as somehow connected to what happened on during that Christmas conversion, mm. that strength, that determination of spirit. Yeah, the Christmas grace is such a mysterious one that God allowed her to have in her life. She describes it in the story of his soul as like one ray of the divine love which fell upon her and in a moment accomplished what had not occurred through 10 years of, you know, just sort of natural maturation. Because, yeah, her mother died when she was four and a half years old. And through the decade that followed, you know, there was a, a, quite a shift in her personality following that trauma where initially she had been, you know, her mother's little imp and kind of rambunctious and headstrong and, and delightful to her parents, but certainly a handful. After her mother's death, the sensitivity, which was natural to her character, became this kind of ultra sensitivity, maybe bordering on a kind of a neurosis. And, um, that persevered through almost 10 years of life until on this Christmas night in 1888 or 1886, rather, the Lord healed her of it in a moment's conversion. It was a miraculous grace. And as you say, from then on, she evinced this, this kind of real inner strength that was a supernatural gift. Um, and yet not something foreign to her nature. And I think this is something we see so beautifully in St. Therese. Yes, it's there in the lives of all the saints, but in Therese, we see it in a, a particularly lucid way that grace doesn't come from without and impose something new on us. Grace, as St. Thomas says, perfects nature. And so grace in Therese perfected that initial sensitivity, which was God's gift to her by bringing her to a state of of greater maturity, no longer this ultra sensitivity that she was, you know, constantly weeping and then crying because she had cried and very much out of control. Now she still has that, that wonderful sensitivity, but it's at the service of love. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I love that truth that grace in the twinkling of an eye can accomplish what we by our own efforts you know, can strive to accomplish over decades. Mm. And it's 
so important to remember that, and this probably leads into a central part of her teaching, which is this complete childlike, not childish, but childlike trust in God, that kind of trust that recognizes that God is at work constantly and that he's removing obstacles that we don't even see look like mm. a good parent. Yes. Um, so yeah. that we can be moving by the divine will and grace. We can go from strength to strength. And it has, this is my sense of Therese that um, by her mysterious cooperation with grace, she really did go from strength to strength and that Christmas conversion was was clearly quite decisive in that regard, which I think reminds me that, um, and I've had these moments in my own life where something was eluding me for a long time and I would be appealing to the Blessed Virgin or to St. Joseph or to Therese or whatever, and then suddenly it was as if the whole thing was reconciled, was healed, yes. was made right. And so just the reminder that in a certain way, all is grace. Yes. Um, which isn't, of course, to say human effort is inconsequential. It's, it's vital. But it is to say in the final analysis, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So I think she embraced that truth about her childlike ineffectuality that she really could not bring about what she wished with <laughs> great ambition of soul. I mean, she had a huge yes. appetite, if you will, huge spiritual Great appetite. desires. Great desires. Be a missionary, be a priest, be in a, well, of course, she didn't mean that in the strict sense, to be an apostle to the apostles, etc. She had these huge ambitions, if you will, but she knew she was incapable of all of them. And so I had to put her trust completely in the Lord and in that capacity of the Lord to take her up the elevator so that it was something that was intrinsically hard became, if you will, relatively speaking, easy. Yes, the image of the elevator is really a central one for the spirituality of Therese. It comes up in a letter she wrote to her sister, Celine, her, her beloved sister, where Therese describes herself, like, like you say, Daniel, as this little girl struggling to climb up the first step of the staircase. She's at the bottom, and she can't lift her little foot even up to the very first step. And of course, this, this staircase is another image for what in the spirituality of Carmel is often referred to as the ascent of the mountain, going up to the heights to meet God. Therese wanted to be there at the very top with St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross and these great spiritual masters, but she recognized her weakness. She recognized her incapacity to even take the first step. And what's so delightful, uh, Daniel, I, I, and I think for us so, um, so convicting and encouraging about St. Therese is she was never for a moment discouraged by her weakness. She did not allow it to become a source of shame. She did not allow her weakness to hold her back from what her desires urged her on towards, which was union with God. She said rather at the bottom of the staircase, she said, I need an elevator to come and take me to the heights. And that elevator will be the arms of the father who looks down upon her from the top of the staircase with great compassion and tender joy 
and love for his little daughter. And she knew that the mercy of that father, which parenthetically I'll add, she knows this about God because she experienced it from her earthly father, who also is a saint, Louis Martin. She knows that the mercy of God the Father could not help but be attracted to the misery of his little girl. And so the father would come down and his arms would become her elevator to lift her up to the heights where she could not go on her own. I'm just resonating with everything you were just sharing. And I, and I just was thinking as a, as a grandfather to little Eleanor Rose, our 15-month-old <laughs> granddaughter, it happens again and again that she is playing happily and things are going well. And then all of a sudden she just like sort of hits a, what we call the point of no return. <laughs> kind of lost, <laughs> lost her capacity to grapple and deal with what's happening. And all she wants is to be picked up. And mm. so it's such a joy to just swoop down and pick her up. So that image of the father of uh, seeing the child struggling and then, you know, in grace and mercy, if you will, swooping down and picking up the child and helping the child, uh, you know, go through whatever the next sequence is, is just really just beautiful. And it's so immediate. It's so immediate to me right now in this period of grandfathering. So beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Daniel. And what a gift, what a gift Therese is. Um, well, let's just look at, at act two of her own life. What a gift she was to her fellow novices. And later on, as she became novice mistress, the teacher of, of the new Carmelites to be, what a gift she was to them. You know, I think back to my early years in seminary. And maybe you've, you had a similar experience as a young man or a recent convert. I think it's very common for those who are just embarking upon a religious life to have this experience. On the one hand, putting all of our faith in our own powers. It's all up to me to be a great saint. I've got to be a great spiritual athlete. I've got to do the spiritual exercises <laughs> in order to be strong enough to live this life. <laughs> and on the other hand, the crushing realization that our strength will never be enough to live the life of sanctity. Therese taught her and her novices in the Carmel of Lisieux that they needed have, have nothing to fear from their own weakness. They didn't even need to fear the torments of purgatory. And some of the other sisters were scandalized by this. They said, Therese, what are you teaching them? They don't have to be afraid of purgatory. <laughs> You're giving them too much false hope. Mm. And fa famously, in an exchange with one sister who was quite scandalized, Therese said very, very mildly and gently to her, you may choose the way that you wish, sister, but as for me, I choose the way of the Lord's mercy. I choose to rely upon his mercy and not on my merits. If you choose the way of the Lord's justice, you will get it. <laughs> <laughs> but I choose oh, wow. the way of mercy. Wow. Yes. Wow. The way of mercy is such a great way to describe in a certain way, the, the little way. Yes. Which is to, with utter confidence, as we were mentioning before, like a child in a, in a good benevolent father, that utter conf confidence in the benevolence, the mercy of the father and it seems as though the way she enacted this reality, the little way, was to show merciful love toward each sister 
including mm. a sister who mm. bugged her in a big way. Yes. And there's a sister, I think it was Sister St. Pierre or something. But anyway, the um, a lot of crotchetiness, crotchetiness <laughs> uh, this older sister displayed, right? And really, in a way, Therese couldn't do anything right. So she's going too fast, then she's going too slow, and then she's not holding her by yeah. the arm properly. <laughs> yeah. And Therese endured each one of those. And then the coup de grace, or the sort of, um, summit of all this, I think, is when the sister, I think quite a bit later, observed or asked her, what makes you like me so much? And mm-hmm. actually, Therese experienced quite an inner antipathy toward this sister. And and you alluded to some of this before. I mean, she had a fiery temper. Yeah. Um, and I think temper is often associated with great aspirations because you're feeling thwarted and so forth, but she never displayed that. And so her little way was merciful act after merciful act after merciful yes. act toward those near her to the point that they would imagine that they were her nearest and dearest, even though she had had to overcome herself myriad countless times, really, in order to be that loving presence toward the, the other sister. Yes. Yeah. And I think as you're illustrating that so well, Daniel, what we talked about earlier, which is the fruit of even of that first, you know, Christmas grace, the complete conversion, which perfected her natural capacity for friendship and her sensitivity to the needs of others and her open heartedness, such that now she's able to put that at the service of merciful love. And as she's received this love from God now in the convent, she's able to, um, to sort of be to her sisters what God is to her, a source of faithful love, of faithful friendship, of constant self-gift without counting the cost or without much concern for what she gets in return because she is receiving everything from God and she's giving it away just as freely as she receives it. I love that. And I I remember somewhere, and Deacon, you probably know where, I think she described herself as having empty hands. Mm, yes. So that whatever came to her, she in turn shared, as you were saying, she did in such a childlike way as a young a young child. Now as a mature uh, Christian, as an heroic Christian, she's paying forward, if you will, or giving everything that's given to her uh, toward others. So that in a sense, one can imagine that a, a gift of mercy comes into her hands and she passes it on. She passes it on to those. Yes that she's um, called to be with and to create a community of love with. So it's, it's that empty hands image, I think is another lovely way to think about um, the degree and the style, if you will, of her generosity that she Mm. didn't hold and harbor and covet. She did quite the opposite. She would release and share every gift of merciful love that she received this conversation is just making me think of um, as a little book called the soul of the apostolate and um, in it, the author whose name now escapes me, maybe, you know, it, Daniel, um, the author talks about the apostle being not like a, a channel, but a reservoir, which is so filled up with grace that it overflows. And I think that that's how I think of St. Therese, you know, I mean, she talks about the empty hands because she's not holding on to anything, but she's utterly full and grace and joy and love just flows forth from her effortlessly. 
And even, even towards the end of her life in her third act, as she experiences the dark night of the spirit, she experiences really a trial, a terrible trial of faith. There is still coming forth from her. You can read it in her last conversations with her sisters coming forth from her pure streams of divine love and joy. And that's, that's a supernatural grace. You know, she was in incredible suffering, both spiritually and bodily. And I think that just goes to show us the state of a soul in union with God, even in terrible trials, there's still mysteriously this divine inflow. And because her hands are open, quote unquote, spiritually speaking, it flows out from her enriching and edifying her sisters and such that she became a source of comfort for them, even as she's lying in bed, helpless and powerless. Wow. Uh, that's a great reflection on the degree of her generosity, even under a really, really acute suffering, as you said, physically and spiritually. And I was also reminded as you were sharing that Deacon, that one of my favorite passages or events or <laughs> milestones in the life of Trez is when she discovered her vocation in the heart of the church. Uh, yes. And I believe that falls within the third act. I think it was essentially she was reading the word of God in first Corinthians that she discovered that, you know, the three theological virtues, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. I think that's mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 or something. Anyway, then she discovers that, ah, you know, it's kind of like an awakening and aha, like a light bulb that I, I've discovered my vocation. And it's to be love in the heart of the church because love animates all. So her desire to be a missionary, to be one of the apostles, to be so many different things, Talk about cutting Gordian's knot. I mean, it's just like you know, God <laughs> gave her this, uh, this insight that as God is love, by becoming love in the heart of the church, her role is to be an animator for all vocations, all charisms. Mm. Mm. So that, to me, is just a, a mind boggler. And just a quick thought about that is I'm in my third act and you're in your first act. <laughs> Um, Deacon, and, and I know you're, you're very fervently following the Lord and, and doing what the Lord is asking of you. So, you know, age is no issue. It's not the years, it's the miles. So, but I think with Therese, there was this capacity to keep discovering um, mm. the path, not to yes. even say, oh, once she discovered the little way, I've kind of got it. Now I'm passing it on to the sisters and so forth. Um, mm. But she, she was still in a good way, I think. I would call it a holy restlessness. She wasn't fully at peace until she discovered her definitive, I'd call it ecclesial call, her call within the church to be love, which is to be mm. God's love animating the very soul of the church. Yes, Daniel, that's well said. Yes, continually discovering the little way. I can see that in my own life as well. And I, I expect you have a similar experience. We'll hopefully talk more about this the next time we have you on the show, Daniel, but um, just in terms of our, our own experiences following Therese's little way. But I think you could sum up my attempts to follow her uh, in one sentence as seeking any other way I could possibly go up the mountain 
and finding all of them are dead ends. <laughs> so I have to keep coming back again and again to the little way of confidence and trust. I'll just conclude with this and you can add anything else if, if you feel moved to do so. Um, but listeners, our, our hope for this kind of first Carmelite conversation was to give a glimpse of a soul on the mountaintop, a soul on the summit of Mount Carmel, which is bathed in sunlight. And certainly we could have chosen St. Teresa or John of the Cross or any of the you know great Carmelite masters. But uh, the particular beauty, I think, of looking at St. Therese at the beginning of our Carmelite conversations is St. Therese lived a life that is quite ordinary, you know? Even her acts of love in the monastery were the stuff of ordinary daily life, folding up her sister's habits that she found crumpled on the floor and hanging them up neatly, you know, as an act of, of merciful love. And she shows us, I think, more clearly than most, uh, the beauty of an ordinary life, which is suffused with divine grace and perfected to become the stuff of heroic sanctity. Amen to all that. And I, I would just add a quick little note here, a little practice that I find useful to stay in a kind of mindfulness about uh, the little way is, I think it's called statio. It is the idea of pausing, taking a little pause. So between one activity and another activity, um, mindfully pausing to reflect in gratitude on what just happened, but also to hmm. center oneself on what's coming and the grace of the next thing. So hmm. I do this little thing. It's kind of the notion of uh, shooting an arrow at the heart of God. I just kind of imagine shooting a glance, a uh, little dart at the heart of Christ. So it doesn't have to be verbal, but just a way to be reminded that all is grace and that apart from Christ, we can do nothing in the littleness of a kind of humility and trust to say, Lord, I'm shooting a glance at you because I know you'll be there for me mm. in the next yes. thing that's coming. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of In Your Embrace podcast. We look forward to uh, speaking with you again soon and sharing more Carmelite conversations and uh, many other good dialogues in days to come. Until then, dear friends, I will offer you a blessing for this week through the intercession of St. Therese and of all the saints. We pray that we may be able to live each day her little way of confidence and love, casting our glances upwards, heavenwards, towards our Father who we know is trustworthy and true in every circumstance of our daily life. As we strive to lift our little foot to take the next step on the way of sanctity, let us implore our Father to come, to meet us where we are, and to lift us up to the heights of divine grace. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Mary.